We're thinking about trying some new things with this podcast in the new year. It's the first thing we'll talk about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with the L.A. women, as one listener has called them, Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi. And like I said, I want to open this up with a different kind of conversation. This is a conversation. Every day I have the great pleasure of talking with you three at nine o'clock every morning, a little after, and people listen in. What we know, because we hear from people, that they feel like they're part of that conversation, and we think we might have a way to do that. We're considering creating a subtext account for Today in Ohio. It's a texting service. It would be free in which people who listen could text to us. We'd all see it, and we could text back throughout the day uh, after episodes. So if we thought, wow, Laura said something really interesting. We don't think people should miss. We could send out a text saying, listen at minute 20 for Laura talking about her beloved Canada. And then people could write in saying, I don't care about Canada. Talk about That's what you're going to get. No, actually I look, I do. I have a texting account with almost 1700 people now and they engage and it is largely very warm very friendly very thoughtful i i can't think of any better engagement tool we've ever had so we're thinking about doing this we're not sure though because it does have a little bit of a cost for us it would be free for the listener so we've put together a survey and we're asking the people who listen to this podcast to fill it out. I think it's six questions. It might be seven. It will not take more than two minutes. It's at cleveland.com slash today. That's it. Simple. Just type in cleveland.com slash today. Fill it out. One of the other things we're thinking about, although this would be more challenging, is a newsletter tied to this podcast. I'm not sure, Laura, how that would be different from the wake up, because basically we talk about the nine top stories of the day and wake up has them all. Uh, but I, I don't know. I'd like to hear what people think about that. Um, what, you know, what do you think? Would you like to hear what people are thinking of us? I know Layla's going to say, I've looked on the Apple podcast <laughs> reviews. I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the Yelp of podcast reviews. <laughs> yeah, it's really mean. Um, yeah. but, but I, I mean, I, what I would like about it is it would allow us to bring people's thoughts into this. You know, I, I look, I heard, I'm still hearing massive commenting on Dave Joyce. Uh, the fact that he would not repudiate Donald Trump when Donald Trump said, I would terminate the Constitution. I mean, Joyce went so far as to say he'd still support him for president. People are aghast. Right, left, conservative, liberal. They're really upset. And he will not come out of hiding now. It's five, day five to say anything. Lots of people weighed in on that. They really wanted to be heard. If we talk about that on the podcast and they come back and they say, you know, I really agree with something Lisa said. Yeah, you know, and we engage in that way. That that could be interesting. All right. I would like to hear more from listeners to see what they like, what they want to hear more of, less of what they dislike. So keep the comments positive. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, I, no, I'm, 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 I'm being facetious. I do I, think it'd be great to hear from people. Yeah, I, they, they generally, when they disagree, it's it's still not condescending and sneering. Another thought we had, this was not my idea. This came from one of our colleagues. We have the ability to let people listen as we record live, you know, and nine days out of 10, we don't make a mistake that has to be edited out. So it'd probably be okay. 
and at the end, they could engage with us. They could stay on after we finish recording and we could talk to them then. So that's a question on the survey. So please help us out. Uh, it'll only take you a minute. Uh, Cleveland.com slash today. Let us know what you think about a texting account, a newsletter, or joining us on occasion uh, after the podcast recording. And that is Today in Ohio. Our audience is disgusted with this, but the Ohio Senate did go through with a move we discussed yesterday, and the vote was 22 to 7, showing just how off the rails state government is these days. What proposed law did they send to the Ohio House that would make George Orwell blush, Laura? We are now calling fossil fuels green energy in Ohio, at least in the Ohio Senate. It has not passed the House, but the Senate thinks it can change science. So 22 senators, to be to be fair, the Democrats voted no, and Matt Dolan was the lone Republican who held out. So that list contains, I went and looked up these, these districts, Republican Nathan Manning, he represents Lorraine and Huron counties. By the way, he is the son of State Representative Gail Manning and former State Representative Jeffrey Manning. Medina County and some other rural counties south, that's Mark Romanchik. By the way, he served four terms in the Ohio House of Representatives before the Senate. Christina Rogner in Summit County, Jerry Serino in Portage and portions of Geauga and Lake, and Sandra O'Brien. So those are the folks from our area who voted for it. Right. The and, folks and, who did not vote for it are Nikki Antonio, Kenny Yuko, and Matt Dolan, who also represent parts of Northeast Ohio. But they voted to classify, mm-hmm. which one of the subtexters I just talked about, the texting account, one of them had the great line. They said, this is the definition of gaslighting. I thought it was great. <laughs> the, but but they voted to classify a fossil fuel as green energy. And then they look us in the face when we talk to them and say, you know, we're doing serious work here. You guys like to make fun of what we're doing, but we're doing serious work. No, you're not. This yeah. is ridiculous. This is going to make us a laughing stock as a state. If it goes through. Yeah. And endanger state parks, because by the way, it allows actually mandates anyone who wants to drill in state parks can. And we put this on the front page of the Plain Dealer today. I was talking about story placement and photos with our print lab editor. And I joked that we should create this photo illustration of an oil derrick sitting right on top of Kelly's Island, because that's what we're talking about here. This is possible. And even though they say oh, that's not going to happen. It's not going to be overrun. We're allowing it to. And who knows what happens in the future? I I mentioned that we've gotten messages on that texting service. It's been a really busy week this week. I've gotten more than 500 in the last three days. And, you know, they're very upset with Dave Joyce saying it's ridiculous. They largely support a photo ID for voters. They'd roughly estimate that's about 80%. And they just say, make it easier to get them. But they really reserve their scorn for this. This was it's embarrassing. It's ridiculous that people came out of the woodwork to just condemn this. It was nearly a hundred percent. There were a couple of people saying, why is this kooky if we still say climate is changing? And okay. One of those that, you know, they don't really participate in the discussion. It is embarrassing. It's completely backwards and just makes no sense. It seems very clear that it's just a favor to the energy lobby. And by the way, this was put onto a bill that changed the number of poultry chicks that may be sold in lots. So a senator even referred to it as the chicken bill in a floor debate, but they were like, hey, let's all this change the definition of green energy onto this chicken bill because this is lame duck. I mean, you got to put it together, the poultry connotations there, right? <laughs> and, and they just force everything through. 
Yeah, and I got to say that a lot of the people I heard from are immediately suspicious that there's some kind of illegal funding going on. A lot of people are mentioning, isn't this how First Energy got into all that trouble? Is somebody doing something illegally to make the Ohio Senate do something that makes no sense and is this ridiculous? Because the Ohio Oil and Gas Association, which goes by the super fun acronym of UGA, did not put this forward. They said they had no position on whether gas is a green energy. Well, somebody's pushing it because exactly. it makes no sense. I, you're just waiting for this to to catch the eyeballs of a John Oliver or one of the late night hosts. I mean, natural gas. I hope they do because then at least we'll get some attention on it. Yeah. They passed this. They just put it in. They passed it within 24 hours. There was no time for outrage to even burble up and people to start calling their senators. Okay. It's today in Ohio. What steps are Cleveland police taking at the request of a team monitoring Cleveland's consent decree to help avoid everything that went wrong during the May 30th riots that followed the police killing of George Floyd in Minnesota? Lisa, will these steps make a difference? There are nine of them, and they certainly seem like they would if they are, you know, put into practice. This, of course, is part of the federal consent decree that the Cleveland Police Department has been under for several years. And in response to the uh, 2020 George Floyd murder protests, which quickly got out of hand in downtown Cleveland. So these were filed in uh, federal judge Solomon Oliver's court for him to review. Uh, No mention on when he's going to review or approve, but there are nine of them all together. Um, Let me list some of them. Uh, Some of the policy changes include the use of force performed or witnessed during a mass demonstration must be reported within one shift. Use of force must be authorized by the police chief or his his or her designee. The police inspections unit will investigate use of force cases, not police supervisors or internal affairs. They will also differentiate handling what they call civil disobedience versus civil disturbance. And there will be some mandated de-escalation techniques and scripts that they will have to go through to, you know, defuse these situations. Officers must be certified and trained on less lethal munitions like pepper balls and smoke grenades. Let's not forget that uh, somebody who was not protesting, a downtown resident, lost his eye because of a, you know, a, a beanbag round. Um, they must change their dispersal order to the crowd that is deemed a civil disturbance. There is specific language they have to use to disperse the crowd. And also they want to get rid of bullhorns because part of the problem back on May 30th of 2020 was that nobody could hear what, what was being said. So they're talking about using long-range acoustic devices to replace bullhorns so the crowd can hear what's being said. Well, that last one is important because they claimed they gave a dispersal order. Nobody heard it. We had people all around down there. Nobody heard them saying that. And then they started opening fire with the beanbags. The, the biggest failure, though, from that day, as we know, was that the Frank Jackson administration and the police brass failed to anticipate what was going to happen. We knew there was going to be a crowd there. We had teams of reporters down there ready for what was going to go off. They didn't. And so the limited number of law enforcement that were at the Justice Center They were overwhelmed. And when officers get overwhelmed, they do stupid things like shoot out people's eyes for no reason. And I don't really see that addressed here. I mean, this is 
this is all on the individual officers, which is important. They shouldn't abuse people needlessly, obviously. But what about the failure of the intelligence? Well, I don't think, to be fair, you know, the protest didn't start downtown. I mean, it was at the mall and it just moved downtown. I don't know if they could have anticipated that or not. No, no, no. The protest started at City Hall in front of the free stamp stamp and and moved, you know, four blocks down to the Justice Center, not even. They used Facebook, the people who had RSVP'd on Facebook to gauge the crowd. That was their intel. Yeah, I mean, it was. And and once, you know, what happened is once this went off, Frank Jackson and the police mobilized fairly quickly. And within, I don't remember, Layla, what was it? Six hours order was restored. And really, it was martial law for a couple of days. It, it was bad downtown. I mean, we had people on Facebook Live and we got them off because it was so scary. They didn't know what they were going to get around the corner. So, yeah, it got really, really bad. OK, it's today in Ohio. Cleveland City Council is in favor of an interesting ask by Cleveland police to help detectives protect witnesses during crime investigations. Layla, what would this do? Well, the city is setting aside a small sum of money from a state grant to pilot the city's first ever witness protection program for witnesses of hom- in homicide cases. Cleveland police's solve rate for homicide cases is at about 64%, which is far better than it has been in the past decade, but it's still a little disappointing. And police say one big reason for that is that many witnesses refuse to participate with investigations because they're too fearful of retaliation. Councilman Joe Jones told Courtney Astolfi about one example, an older man who was beaten after sharing sharing with police ring doorbell footage of a crime. When the man later witnessed another crime, he refused to talk to police because he was so afraid for his his own life and, and for his wife. Police told Courtney that until now, witness relocation efforts have been pretty much dependent on homicide detectives to pull their cash together uh, out of their own pockets to fund uh, hotel rooms for at-risk family members or other witnesses. In in other cases, police work with Cleveland Metropolitan Housing Authority, um, I'm sorry, Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority, or or housing-related organizations like Frontline Services to to figure out a solution. Sometimes that means moving witnesses into a shelter or using nonprofit money to pay for short hotel stays. So the city's only going to set aside $17,000 for this effort, and some council members criticize that as, as falling pretty short of the need. Some were in favor of even tapping into federal COVID relief funds to further uh, send this pilot uh, towards success. What bothers me about this, it's not a lot of money, but you, you just hope that there's an auditing function, right? That this isn't just some extra money police can spend as they see fit without anybody looking over their shoulder. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, but really, I mean, $17,000 is about the most meager. <laughs> I mean, what? how far is that really going to go? I, I'd love to know how often do they, can they quantify this? How often are, are they, you know, when they say they're dipping into their pockets and, and putting people up in hotels, how often is that happening? And, you I don't know, know. We I don't were, know, we were talking yesterday about uh, some of the major uh, true crime stories of the past few years that might make for interesting limited series podcasts. And we were talking about the reign of terror by the heartless felons in all manner huh. of crimes. And part of the problem with the heartless felons is people were petrified of them and wouldn't talk to police. And so if police could put 
guarantee people we'll keep you safe till we get these guys off the street. This is where we're going to put you up. Maybe it would help. How long does that take, though? I, I mean, know. their solve rate is sixty four percent. You could be you could be living in a hotel for 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 a couple years. It seems. Yeah. Well, maybe this will bump that up. It's today in Ohio. The Ohio Supreme Court made a ruling Wednesday with big importance to history preservationists involving some big bumps in the earth. Laura, I never really understood the fascination with these. I visited them and was not impressed. But what's the fight about? I don't know if the visual part is the most impressive. It's the history behind it and knowing how they were created. So this is a series of ancient Native American earthworks. And the court's six-to-one ruling allows that Ohio's State Historical Society can use this eminent domain power to buy out a lease from a Newark golf course that's located on the earthworks. They're called the Octagon Earthworks. They were built by the Hopewell culture sometime between 100 BC and 500 AD. So really, really old. And the Ohio History Connection would like to designate them as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That's uncertain whether it will happen. But I would like to point out the lone dissenter in this case is Chief Justice-elect Sharon Kennedy. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, 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 it's a golf course on top of the mounds now. Is that, yes. is that the current use yes. of it? Yes. Can you just imagine that's your your barrier in the way of your team, <laughs> the green. It's interesting that the Supreme Court has to weigh in on, on this, but I, it'll be preserved. And, and Well, people... the issue is, were they acting in good faith when they made the offer? Because they had two different valuations. And the first one was uh, they gave an $800,000 estimate to break this lease that goes to 2078, I believe. Then they got a second appraisal and that concluded the lease was worth $1.75 million, but the the president of the History Connection didn't know that at the time, so he didn't offer that much money. And so they're coming back and saying, this wasn't in good faith, so you can't use the eminent domain law. This is not settled. This goes back to court to actually look at the eminent domain case itself rather than this good faith offer. Okay. It's today in Ohio. Skipping ahead a little bit. Lisa, the Cuyahoga County Executive has the duty of appointing members to the Board of Trustees that oversees Metro Health. And we have a new county executive starting in a month. What does Chris Hernane say he will do to restore faith in the much-needed hospital system after the revelations that ousted CEO Akram Boutros gave himself $2 million in secret bonuses? We've been waiting to hear from Chris Ronane on this. And it looks like he's going to hit the ground running next month when he takes office. So he, the first thing he wants to do is establish an observation team, and he wants to have it in place by the end of January. Uh, he also wants to perform an independent audit and maybe replace some board members at Metro Health. But let's talk about the team. That seems to be the most important thing. So this would be ostensibly members that would include human resources, auditing, and financial people. Uh, he wants to talk with incoming Metro Health CEO Eric Steed on how to structure this team, how many people will be on it, but they will all be appointed by Ronane with input from the county council. Um, he says that he may reassign some current county workers to do this, maybe get some new people. Doesn't know whether or not this would be a paid position or a volunteer position. And looking at the Metro Health Board, there are 10 members that are appointed for six-year terms by county council, although there are nine now because Terry Monley resigned yesterday. Uh, Ronane may ask some of these members to step down. He says he has the right to change the board. He wants to look into whether 
the board was negligent or complicit with these uh, bonuses that went to Akron Boutris. And they're also talking about appropriate controls, which would include an independent audit. And he also agreed with the uh, decision by county council earlier this week to withhold its $32 million annual subsidy to Metro Health until things get straightened out. I, I feel for the board members on this a bit. Yes, they didn't do their oversight. And there's a long history of this that we're exploring. There have been multiple t- stops in the history of Metro Health where the board wasn't watching. But these boards are not full-time jobs. These people all have important full-time jobs, or most of them do. And this is a, it, an advisory board. They They do pick the CEO and they do look at the budget, but it's not their full-time job. Is this the best system for overseeing something this colossally big and important? It's one thing to have a board overseeing the food bank, right? I mean, that's it's a, a group that does great good and they get together and they deal with it and you've got a great director there uh, handling the, the, the management day-to-day. But Metro Health is an enormous hospital system that is vital to the health of this community. Should you really have a bunch of once in a while meetings to oversee it, or should you have some sort of rigor? I mean, would it be better if, if Chris Ronane would have a team of employees now that sit and look at budgets and look at bonuses and have the responsibility to provide the oversight. I certainly think that's on his wish list because he is talking about, will this be a paid position? Will they be reassigning people? But then it comes down to budget. If you're going to pay however many people are on this team, you know, you're going to have to budget for that. Yeah, but but would it cost $2 million a (laughs) year? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I, I, this just doesn't seem to work. It is, it is broken down a number of times. I think what happens is the board hires a CEO. They put a lot of trust in the CEO and they don't pay as close of attention as you would hope they would with a budget this big. And then things go, go south. Good for Chris Ronane to get on top of it, but we've been here before crisis reaction, and then back to the way we did business before until the next crisis. Maybe there ought to be a system that stops the crises. It's Today in Ohio. We've talked a lot about how Cuyahoga County and Cleveland are spending their federal stimulus windfalls. Cuyahoga County, of course, is squandering $66 million on slush funds. Layla, Akram seems to have been more efficient. Where's the money going? Yeah, Akron has already earmarked all of its $145 million that the city's getting from the American Rescue Plan Act. And, and yeah, like you said, other cities are kind of spinning their wheels trying to figure out how to spend this this once-in-a-lifetime money. Akron officials gave a presentation recently outlining where their money is going. And the largest funding category was $48 million for parks and public places. Then there was $26 million for housing. Other big categories include $15.6 million for u- utility bill assistance and utility maintenance and $10.5 million for surveillance, police, and violence prevention grants, and then $10 million for employee premium pay. And they're setting aside $20 million for a program that helps residents make some home repairs. 
And some some highlights from from the list also include uh, renovations to the Ed Davis Community Center. That that's ten point seven million. That's going to this community center to for a new gym, an indoor track, an outdoor playground. And uh, they're spending three point five million for affordable housing. These this will be money um, flowing to community development groups to to spend money uh, redeveloping abandoned homes, installing uh, air conditioning and HVAC units in low income buildings and stuff like that. They're going to spend eleven million replacing main water pipes, many of which contain lead. And they'll be handing out seven and a half million worth of violence prevention grants to organizations that focus on youth mentorship and after-school programming and reentry, things like that. So, so yeah, they have it pretty well nailed down in Akron. What what is it about Akron? They seem to run so much more efficiently there than pretty much all the other governments around here. The, the mayor there, who's leaving Mayor Horrigan has been very professional in his administration of the city and the council seems to work closely with him. I mean, what, what, what is it about Akron that makes it kind of the Well, it's funny you should bring it up. Yesterday I was talking to Lucas DePrilli, our stimulus watch reporter, about this story. And he was kind of pointing out that the that it seemed, and he's gonna look more closely at this, but it seemed that the legislation that granted the mayor permission to spend this money was kind of looked like a blank check and that there wasn't a lot of, you know, they didn't really require the mayor to come back to the table with a lot of these ideas. He was kind of make, you know, calling the shots once they passed that, that, you know, broad umbrella legislation. And so he's, Lucas is going to look more closely at that to see if, if that truly is what it appears to be. But if that's the case, sure, that would make you pretty efficient. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a <laughs> let, metro. Let the health, mayor make all the decisions. That's a metro situation. Did somebody get two <laughs> million dollars right. of bonuses out of that money? That, that would not be good <laughs> that's if right. that's the answer. I hope he does look into that. It's today in Ohio. On the eve of Ohio having an entirely new gambling platform in sports betting, are we seeing a year that will set another record for overall gambling in the state before sports betting is even legal? Laura. That is looking pretty likely. I love how editor Rich Exner referred to this story not as gambling revenue, but as better's losses, because that is, after all, how a casino makes money. So we could look at it as every year we lose more and more money to casinos. But November reports released Wednesday by the Ohio Casino Control and Lottery Commissions show that combined the 11 facilities across the state took in $183.6 million in gambling money out of paying after paying out the winnings. That's up from $178.8 million reported last November. And remember, 2021 was a record year after the shutdown of COVID. So they've broken the record every year except for in 2020, obviously COVID. But 2021 was this hugely red hot year, broke 2019's record by $120 million. Mm. Man, it's a lot of gambling. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of numbers. But gambling was up 2.5% in Cleveland market alone compared to 2021. I wonder if there's any way to quantify the gambling problems in the state if they've gone up because sports betting is clearly going to exacerbate those problems. It's there's a lot of advertising, a lot of gambling. advertising, <laughs> a and, lot and of TV ads. Want, yeah. And they all can, they have the disclaimer, the, the, the numbers to call. I just wonder if we've seen a spike in. Do you think people actually avail themselves of those resources? You think people call those hotlines? Was addiction? I think they've got to be addiction. pretty desperate, or their or family, their family member probably that. will, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. 
And I know a lot of people see this as entertainment, right? This is entertainment money and they're having a good time and that's fine. But it is a huge m- amount of money. Well, and, but yeah, right. For, for the majority of people, this is how they spend the recreational dollars. For those that have the addiction problem, it, it, it's something that society needs to work on. It's Today in Ohio, short podcast today. One of our stories fell through. Please do fill out our survey at cleveland.com slash today. We'll have reminders in the next few episodes. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening. And thank you if you fill out the survey. We'll be back Friday. 